0: All right, well, we are back to uh, hermeneutics. We're in the process of looking at the principles that uh, one needs to keep in mind when uh, going through hermeneutics. Uh, So a little bit of review... We talked about the first one pretty much in depth, the priority of the original languages. Since the originals were inspired, copies and and, uh, translations were not, you need to get back to the original in order to understand the point of the original because whenever you translate, you're going to lose something. Mm -hmm. And you have the language resources on the resource list that will probably do a pretty good job of getting you the information you need. <clears throat> we talked about the idioms, figures of speech, cultural issues that are all part of the language. We talked about grammar and syntax. We looked at the conditional sentences in Greek as an example. If You have to know how the grammar works if you're going to get the point of the sentence. <laughs> and so we looked at uh, all of those things. And we, I gave you this chart last uh, well, time before last, I guess, on those different cases. We got into the second principle, which is the accommodation of revelation. That is, God accommodated revelation to our level of thinking. Um, he dumbed it down for us so, so we can understand. But at the same time, He presents it in language that we can understand. Uh, obviously, if He wants to communicate he's got to make it easy for us to understand so he doesn't reveal everything but everything he reveals is true and he puts it in language we can understand so we have to be aware of of the different literary genres and literary devices the different kinds of literature the law the history the poetry all of that stuff you have to examine those things differently because they have different rules. Uh, And then the literary devices like parallelism and chiasms, which we looked at, paragraph structure, the structure of lists. Uh, We started uh, dealing with uh, an example of paragraph structure and lists last time in, in 1 Corinthians 13. So we're going to continue with that tonight. So if you don't have your Bible open to that already, then it'd be good to do that. Um, Excuse me. When it comes to literary devices, we're looking at how the words are arranged on the page. Not so much the content of what the words say, but how they look on the page, the way things are arranged. It's like looking at a picture and seeing how it's composed. The way the writer arranges the words on the page can tell us help to clarify what his point is and give us some insights into what he's saying. And again, we looked at the chiasms and how that works, um, how chiasms work. So tonight, we're going to get into the a uh, couple of other literary devices. Specifically, again, the paragraph structure and the structure of lists, the use of synonyms, things like that. Uh, these are also things that you can figure out from the English text, as we've, we saw with the, with the uh, conditional sentences in Greek. You can kind of work backwards from English and figure it out. You can kind of do the same thing, uh, especially if you have a translation that's based on the grammar of the original. If you have the NIV or some of those other interpretive translations, it's not going to be that easy, <laughs> okay? because they're not interested so much in the structure of things as they are in the general idea. <clears throat> so we are looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 13, specifically verses 8 to 12, um, and we're, we're doing a little bit of hermeneutics as we go through this passage. To illustrate the uh, well to illustrate how hermeneutics works as well as to show how the literary devices contribute to the meaning or the understanding of the meaning of the, of the uh, text so going back to the overall context um, in chapters 12 13 and 14 Paul deals with the issue of spiritual gifts. Remember, the whole book is a correction of errors and problems that were going on in the Corinthian church. So Paul is trying to straighten them out. He was there for a year and a half teaching them, and they still had problems. (laughs) So he's writing to straighten them out. And it all stems from that attitude of selfishness. They're always promoting themselves about things. In the first four chapters, they were arguing about who the best teacher was, Mm -hmm. and Paul says, the teacher doesn't matter, it's the message that counts, (laughs) so forget the teacher. Well, we have the same thing here. The Corinthians were emphasizing the gift of tongues and the more miraculous spiritual gifts, and um, trying to evaluate one another, really, based on what gifts they had. And Paul is trying to tell them it's not the gift that matters, it's how you use it, and why you use it. <clears throat> so in chapter 12, he introduces the idea of spiritual gifts, that God gave the gifts, you didn't ask for it, you, know, you didn't work for it, you didn't develop it, God gave it to you because that's the one he wanted you to have, so you have nothing to brag about. Okay? Your job is to use it. And he talks about the fact that all the gifts are equally valuable in the church. They're all necessary for the common good. <clears throat> None are any better than any of the others, as far as that goes. In chapter 13, he focuses on the, the um, motive for using the gifts, which is love. Okay, But the gift you have doesn't matter. What matters is how you use it. You need to use it for the right reason in the right way in chapter 14 he kind of applies what he said in verses or chapters 12 and 13 and he gets into the actual exercise of the gifts the, some principles procedures for using the different gifts and as I was reviewing this this morning I it, it hit me um, you could summarize these three chapters Chapter 12, in reference to spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, you could summarize as what? The what of spiritual gifts. (laughs) He gets into the gifts, what they are, how they function. Chapter 13 is the why. Why do you use the gifts? It's an expression of love toward one another. And chapter 14, you could summarize as how. How do you use the gifts? And he gives some principles there for using those gifts. so chapter 13 then is the why why do you use spiritual gifts we looked at this a little bit before we'll we'll briefly summarize since it's been a couple of weeks in the first uh, four verses of the chapter first three verses excuse me he talks about the uh, supremacy of love to gifts he lists several of the gifts there especially the edification gifts and he says, if I do all of these things, and, but I don't do them out of love, then it's pointless. You know, it just doesn't work. You may have noticed if, if you have uh, exercised your spiritual gift or gifts, um, as long as you do it in, for the right reasons, in the right way, you're going to feel good it's it's a blessing to use the gift that God has given you. The huge danger is people start using their gifts just to get that feeling. <laughs> and as soon as you start using the gifts for your own feelings, it stops. <laughs> the gift, you, you cannot exercise your gift effectively and you don't get that feeling anymore. So love is superior to the gifts. Uh, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Verses 4 through 7, he talks about the nature of love. Love is focused outward, not inward. So the, the Corinthians' attitude was all inward. They were focused on, well, I've got this gift and you don't, so I'm better than you are. But that's not the point. The point is you have the gift in order to use for somebody else's benefit. So love is focused outward, not inward. And then verses 8 through 12, he talks about why love is superior to the gifts. And he says it at the beginning of verse 8. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Love is more important than the gifts because love lasts. It's eternal. The gifts are not. They're temporary. They're all going to end. <clears throat> and he goes on to explain why in the in the rest of that paragraph, which we will look at more carefully in a couple minutes. Here, we started this last week, if you or the week before, I guess, mm-hmm. if you remember correctly. <laughs> uh, we're looking at this from the point of view of some conservative theologians that want to avoid the excesses of the charismatic movement which focuses on gift of tongues and pretty much to the exclusion of everything else. And to avoid those excesses, they came up with the idea that tongues stopped, tongues as a gift, was no longer given when the New Testament was completed. Therefore they say the charismatics are off base because tongues doesn't even exist anymore. Well, there are problems <laughs> with that view, okay, they take it from this, from this passage, uh, where it says there in verse eight, the tongues would cease. We'll talk more about their emphasis on that in a minute. And then in verse ten, when it says the perfect, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And they interpret the perfect as the completion of the New Testament. And they say the tongues was a sign gift Paul calls it a sign in chapter 14 so they say it was a sign to verify the authenticity of the New Testament or the uh, the apostolic message of the, the new covenant and once that that message was finalized when the New Testament was completed that gift wasn't necessary anymore. It had already been verified. So we have the written record, so you don't have to have the miracle anymore. You can go read about it. Logically, that makes sense, except it's wrong, <laughs> as we shall see. Okay, <clears throat> Just to... Just to uh, well, approaching it from a different perspective. You don't need to have that understanding of tongues from this passage to show that the charismatics are wrong these whole three chapters paul's argument in these three chapters can be used against the charismatics just as paul was using it against the corinthians it's the same problem (laughs) they have the same attitude okay so the charismatics are emphasizing the gift you know if you don't speak in tongues you're not saved everybody has to speak in tongues well Paul clearly says not everybody speaks in tongues okay? and so their attitude is the same as the Corinthian attitude so you don't have to have this understanding that tongues stopped when the New Testament was finished to prove that the charismatics are wrong that the whole section here these three chapters prove that so let's get into this again we talked about part of this last time um, They say that because tongues was a sign to verify the New Testament or the, yeah, the New Testament message, that it wasn't necessary after the New Testament was finished, therefore it stopped and the gift of tongues isn't given anymore. The problem is there several problems with that first problem the function of tongues. Uh, tongues was not used to authenticate the apostolic message. Miracles were, but tongues was not. Uh, Plus, being a sign was not the only function of tongues. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul says that all the gifts are for edification. And he says, if you speak in a tongue in the church... And by the way, the word tongue simply means a language. language that's different from your language. Uh, It's not some mysterious heavenly gobbledygook. Paul says if you have the urge to give a message in a foreign language in the middle of church, he says that's fine as long as there's someone there who has the gift of interpretation. because if you don't interpret nobody's gonna gonna know what you're talking about and you have failed to edify okay so if you don't have an interpreter then shut up <laughs> don't say anything because okay, this is going to cause confusion it's not going to be helpful so tongues were for edification just as all the other gifts were now tongues were assigned, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 21 and 22, but they were assigned to unbelievers, specifically unbelieving Israel. And he quotes Isaiah there. Um, Isaiah is preaching just before the Babylonian captivity. If you go back to chapter 1 of Isaiah, God is pleading with Israel to straighten up. And he says, you are black and blue from head to foot. (laughs) I've tried to get your attention, and now there is no sensitive spot left on you. What can I do to get your attention to wake you up so you will repent? You know, you're beyond hope. And we get to the passage in Isaiah, what is it, 28 or 29, something like that. Uh, God says, from now on, I'm going to speak to you in a foreign language, a language you're not going to understand. This is a prefiguring of the Babylonian captivity. They're going to go into Babylon. They didn't speak the language of Babylon. It's a symbol that God is through speaking to them. He had spoken to them through all the prophets and they had not paid attention. He says, Okay, if you're not going to pay attention, then I'm not going to talk to you anymore. <laughs> so now you're going to hear a foreign language. So it was a sign to unbelieving Jews or Israelites that God was finished. They're in for judgment now. So it was a sign, but it was a sign to unbelieving Jews. It wasn't a sign to verify the New Testament. It did authenticate salvation. We looked at this last time in, in Acts chapters 8, 10, and 19. Each time a new people group was introduced to the gospel, and believed it they sent for the elders of the church of Jerusalem the elders came and laid hands on the people and they received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues just as the disciples at the beginning in Acts chapter 2 did when the Holy Spirit came upon them they spoke in tongues so every time this happened in the book of Acts chapters 8, 10, and 19 it was authentic authenticating their salvation Peter and chapter 10 is great because peter went to cornelius a gentile and he's standing there giving the gospel to this gentile family and before he's even finished they all start speaking in tongues (laughs) the holy spirit came upon them and they and peter says hey i don't have to say anything more (laughs) these guys obviously have the same salvation that we got okay and so let's baptize them get them into the group so in Acts chapter 8 Philip is in Samaria um, and the same thing happens there the Samaritans believe and Peter and John come up from Jerusalem lay hands on them they receive the Spirit and speak in tongues Acts 10 we talked about already Acts 19 Paul is in Ephesus and he finds some disciples of John the Baptist there and he said did you receive the Holy Spirit and they said what's the Holy Spirit (laughs) they had never heard of that so Paul laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues. So it authenticated genuine salvation. That's the <laughs> one function of tongues. There is, isn't that chapter 19 also where some of the charismatic gets, charismatics get that you, you, you have to receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, it doesn't happen when you're saved because those people supposedly, you know, they heard from John... The yeah, they, no. they could use that. The problem yeah. is... It, yeah, I, I heard it, yeah. Spoken. yeah, the problem with that is that situation, those, those disciples were still Old Covenant. They're still under the Old Covenant. Right. They were responding to John the Baptist's message, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. <clears throat> they hadn't been informed about the New Covenant yet so this is a brand new new covenant today you know all we have is a new covenant we're not switching from old to new okay <laughs> so that that they may use that yeah. but it's off base yeah, yeah it doesn't work <clears throat> excuse me Um uh, well God dealt with people differently in the Old Testament. They they didn't speak in tongues because um well yeah I guess you're right the Holy Spirit hadn't come. Uh the new covenant hadn't been inaugurated. So they're still under that old covenant system and speaking in tongues wasn't part of that. Right, it was a temporary thing. Right. 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 Yeah, so tongues were not an issue in the Old Testament. That's a new covenant thing. Uh, So what did authenticate the apostolic message? Miracles, (laughs) not tongues. We have that in Acts chapter 8 again with Philip. He goes up to Samaria and he's preaching and he's healing people and casting out demons and the people respond to the miracles. And they see the miracles and they say, wow, this must be God's message. And then he sent for Peter and John who came up and laid hands on these new believers and they received the Holy Spirit spoken to us. Acts chapter 13, Paul and Silas are in the island of Cyprus there, just off the coast. They work their way down the island. Right over here. They leave Antioch over here, and they, go, and they go all the way through, and they go down to the capital, <clears throat> the south, southwest end of the island there. And uh, there's a magician there who believes the gospel and is following Paul and Silas around, and then he sees Paul lay hands on new believers, and they receive the Spirit. it doesn't say there that they spoke in tongues, but they obviously had to because the magician saw something that indicated the Spirit had come. And in the other passages, we know that that was speaking in tongues. So he wanted to buy the power (laughs) to be able to bestow the Holy Spirit. And Paul lays into him and, and criticizes him and makes him blind and the governor of the island sees that miracle, this guy's all of a sudden blind, and so he believes <laughs> because of the miracle, not because of speaking in tongues. So the people who want to say that tongues was a sign of the uh, the authenticity of the New Testament message, the New Covenant message, are kind of off base because tongues didn't do that. It was miracles that did that. Tongues were a sign, but not for that. So the whole premise of their argument is off. The second problem with that idea that tongues stopped when the New Testament was completed relates to the context. Paul's focus in these three chapters is on the attitude of the Corinthians. He's trying to correct that improper attitude. He mentions in chapter 13 that the tongues would cease, that the, the all the spiritual gifts would end, but it's just a sub-point. It's not the main point. He's not he's not saying hey guys (laughs) and he's not distinguishing when some gifts would end and when other gifts would end they're all going to end he says he's not making a distinction that's not his point it's just a sub point his main point is to correct this false attitude the duration of gifts is not it Mm -hmm. so to to emphasize that here is kind of to miss the point of the whole passage just taking things out of context The third problem with that argument, that idea that the gift of tongues stopped when the New Testament was completed, deals with the middle voice. And this is... Yeah, we might get through this. (laughs) Another point of grammar here, okay? (laughs) In English, we have two voices for verbs: active voice and passive voice. The active voice is the subject doing something sometimes with an object and sometimes all by itself. The passive voice emphasizes the object receiving the action. The subject isn't important. Well, Greek has active and passive, but it also throws in another one called the middle voice. Middle because it's in between those two. And the emphasis of the middle voice is that the subject acts by or for itself or on its own with no outside influence. It's somewhat like our reflexive pronouns, the self-pronouns. For example, the surgeon cut himself. The action goes back to the subject. That's sort of like the middle voice. There's, no, there's nothing else going on out there. It's just the subject doing something by itself. <clears throat> Not exactly parallel, but that's sort of the idea. So this verb cease, when it says in verse 8, tongues will cease... The word cease is in the middle voice. And so these scholars say, well, because tongues is in the middle, excuse me, the word cease is in the middle voice, and it says tongues will cease, that means tongues are going to stop all by themselves, as though they have a built-in cutoff switch. And at a certain point in time, that switch will flip, and tongues will be no more. And they say the time of that was the completion of the New Testament, based on verse 10. When the perfect comes. The word perfect means to be finished, to be completed, but it also means to reach the goal, to accomplish what you set out to accomplish. But they say the completion, the word complete there, perfect means to complete, to complete the the New Testament. So, based on the middle voice of the verb cease and the idea of the perfect coming, they put those together and say that tongues would stop when the New Testament was completed. That's very shaky. (laughs) We already saw that that they don't really go together. It's kind of a circular argument when you think about it. They start with the idea that tongues was temporary, and then they manipulate this passage to try to prove that tongues is temporary. Uh, It doesn't work. We'll see why as we go along. So, that's the middle voice, all right? That's their argument. Tongues will cease, middle voice, all by itself, no outside influence. Where it says that um, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. And if the, the last item, the third item in the list, if there is knowledge, it will be done away. That verb, done away, is the same verb in both cases, karagel. It basically means to nullify, to cancel, to make ineffective, to do away with. To eliminate, yeah, it's active voice. So something is going to act on these gifts from the outside to stop them. Okay. Tongues says it will cease. That's middle voice. They're going to cease all by themselves. So they see a difference in the way these gifts are going to end. Okay. Problems <laughs> with that. All right. It's true. That's what the middle voice means that the subject is going to act all by itself okay, without any outside influence. <clears throat> the basic problem, and there are several here, the basic problem is that with this particular verb the little voice is the preferred voice with this verb. Whenever anybody uses this verb in the New Testament, they use it in the middle voice. They don't use the active voice. <laughs> one time, well, actually one time they do. Okay? And I read this in my research for these lessons, and I thought, really, is that true? Is that the preferred voice? I mean, you think about it, if, if whenever they use this word, and the word in the active voice is pa'uo, we get our word pause from that to, to come to an end, to stop. Um, if the middle voice is the preferred voice, if everybody just uses the middle voice in this verb, then it loses its power. The middle voice stops to being significant, because that's just the voice people use, you know? So that's one issue. Um, And I I wondered about that. I said, is it true, what I read, that the middle voice was the preferred voice? Uh, I did some research (laughs) to find out, (laughs) okay? Just to double check. So I got out my concordance and I looked up every use of the word pa'uo in the New Testament. Now, there are some compound words where pa'uo is the, the root word and they add some prefixes to it that gives little different shades of meaning. I ignored the compound words because I'm not interested in those. <laughs> Just pa'uo, how is it used? Okay. I found that it's used 13 times in the New Testament. Once is in the active voice. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> And that's Acts 13.10. We already looked at this. Uh, this is Paul and Silas in Cyprus, and they're, they're uh, dealing with this magician who is a false believer. In part of his criticism, Paul says, will you never stop perverting the things of God? And that word stop is pa'ul, active voice, meaning you're going to stop this, or you're never going to stop this. Okay, it's the only time in the New Testament it's used in the active voice. <clears throat> All the rest it's in the middle voice. Actually, the Greek uses the same form for both middle voice and passive voice, and you kind of have to go by the context. Pa'uomai is the middle passive. Okay, slash middle slash passive. So, wait, wait, wait. You're saying the passive and the middle are the same. Same form. Got it. Pa-u-a-mai yeah and the context will tell you whether it's the middle voice or the passive voice okay so one time it's clearly passive <clears throat> acts 20 verse one actually it's this story starts in chapter 19 paul is is in Ephesus and he's causing problems because people are converting to Christianity and abandoning paganism and they're they're costing the silversmith's money <laughs> Okay. So they hold a riot, you know, great is Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians, you know, for hours they chant this. And the town clerk try, finally gets their attention and says, "Hey guys, you don't have any legal cause for this disturbance. And if Rome finds out that you have we have a disturbance here and there's no justifiable reason for it, we're in trouble." <laughs> so cool it, you know, and chapter 20 starts by saying the riot stopped. Clearly that's passive voice because it, it was the town clerk's statement that caused them to stop rioting. Okay. So it's in the the middle passive voice, but it's clearly a passive emphasis. Something happened to cause that. All, right. all the rest of the times, the 11 Other times, it's used in the middle voice. So the middle voice is the predominant voice for this verb. So what I read in that other book that said this was the chosen voice for this verb, (laughs) holds true. Another issue, six of those 11 times where the middle voice is used, it's in a context that calls for an active emphasis. For example, in Luke eight twenty four, Jesus and the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up. You remember the story: the wind and the waves and the rain, and the boat's starting to sink, and the disciples are paddling, are, are bailing out the boat as fast as they can. And it's not doing any good. And where is Jesus all this time? He's asleep. He's asleep. <laughs> yeah. So they wake him up and say, don't you care? (laughs) about He wakes up and says, what's going on, guys? (laughs) What's the problem? And they say, what's the problem? Look, (laughs) we're sinking. (laughs) So he stands up, and what does he do? It says he rebuked the wind and the rain and the storm. And then it says, and the winds stopped. And the word stopped is this word, pa'uomai, middle voice. But did they stop on their own? No, they stopped as a result of his command. So there's an active voice emphasis there, even though the verb, that particular verb, is in the middle voice. So with this particular verb, the middle voice loses its emphasis, loses its significance. It really no longer relates to the subject acting all by itself without any outside influence. Uh, It... so to say that tongues would cease all by themselves because it's in the middle voice doesn't apply but if you're a normal person like me (laughs) and every time i read the word ceased i say ceased means to stop i don't know if it's in the middle voice or the active voice i don't know that because i don't know original greek Mm -hmm. so i can see how many lay people would misinterpret it because that's true. That's why I gave you that list of resources. <laughs> so you can look it up. How many people are going to actually get those Yeah, that's true. The, the, I agree. Yeah, that happened. The problem in this particular case is the people who are making this argument are scholars. <laughs> yeah, they know it. <laughs> okay. They're familiar with it. Okay. Yeah. So I'll blame it on them. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a good point. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so the song stopped. Then, is it passive voice? It, well, it's middle voice. Yeah. Middle and passive. Middle and passive are the same yeah. form. In the context, the wind stopped. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be middle or is it going to be passive? Mm-hmm. Flip a coin. <laughs> I think it would be middle voice because the winds are blowing and all of a sudden they stop. So the implication is they stop by themselves. But in the bigger context, we know that he stopped them. Yeah. All right. So it's that way with this word. Okay. So to say that tongues would stop all by themselves because this is in the middle voice is a weak argument because the middle voice doesn't have that emphasis with this particular verb. Because everybody uses the middle voice. Another problem uh, with this middle voice is a broader issue, and that is nobody, well, I shouldn't say nobody, people seldom follow the rules. Okay. every language has rules that dictate how the language is used mm-hmm. we have rules in English okay? yeah, kind of exactly oh, nobody uses the language the way it's supposed to be used yeah, yeah. <laughs> well you know all languages well I read last late last year early this year I finished I think in February and March, a book by D.A. Carson called Exegetical Fallacies. I mentioned this book before. And he made a point there which bothered me at first, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, he's right, so I have to adjust my thinking about Greek in in biblical Greek. Because when I was in school, college and seminary studying Greek, you know, we were taught these are the tenses in Greek, and this is what these tenses mean. So when you find that tense in the Bible, that's what the passage means. It, it means what that tense means. And it's the same with the voices, with the moods, all of those. This is what the grammar says, and so this is what that passage has to mean. D.A. Carson says, not necessarily. <laughs> I'm thinking, no, don't do this to me. <laughs> He he says because languages are fluid. You know, people don't follow the rules. And as I was reading the book and read that, an, an example came to mind when we were doing Hebrews, if you can remember back that far. In my research, I found that the writer to the book of Hebrews, of the book of Hebrews, regularly throughout the whole book uses the past perfect tense when the context calls for the simple past tense. Why did he do that? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) He didn't follow the rules. Fortunately, the translators recognized that he should have used the past tense because that's what the context calls for. And so they translated those things as past tense. But if you interpreted them based on the past perfect, you'd get the wrong understanding of what that passage is saying. Okay. So, people don't follow the rules. Languages are flexible. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so, just because the person used the middle voice with this verb doesn't mean he intended it to be the emphasis of the middle voice. Okay? And it's frustrating. You know, Latin... Nobody speaks Latin anymore. Anybody speak Latin? (laughs) Nobody but scholars who study old things, you know. Why doesn't anybody speak Latin anymore? Because the people who put Latin together came up with a descriptive grammar. Excuse me, a prescriptive grammar. They said, this is the way Latin works... And this is the way it'll always work. It's never going to change. Mm. Well, the people changed. And the people started using Latin in, di- in ways that broke the rules. And Latin eventually degenerated into Italian. So Italian is a corruption of Latin. <laughs> but nobody speaks Latin anymore. It's a dead language because the rules didn't change to match the way the people use the language. In English, we have a descriptive grammar the rules of English say this is the way the language is being used right now. Those rules will change as people use the language differently. I can think of some examples, so I we'll won't take time to go over them now, some things that just drive me nuts, but everybody does it. It breaks the rules, and eventually the rules are going to change. <laughs> and instead of doing it right, the way it should be, the rules are going to say, well, now we do it this way. Yeah, that's true. So, languages change. The same happened with Hebrew. It degenerated into Aramaic. Aramaic is a corruption of Hebrew. The language that the common people spoke. The priests still used Hebrew. The Catholic Church still uses Latin. (laughs) But that's, you know, just a very limited usage. Mm -hmm. So... The middle voice here doesn't really prove anything. Everybody uses the middle voice when they use this verb. Plus, not everybody follows the rules. Well, there may be other reasons for that, but we won't go into that. So the final point on this this thing about the questionable middle voice, they emphasized that tongues would stop all by themselves when the New Testament was completed. But Paul's point here is that all of the gifts are going to stop, not just tongues, when the perfect comes. Okay, So we're going to look into that. Well, we can get started in it. So the fourth problem I have with the idea that tongues would stop when the New Testament was completed deals with the definition of the perfect. These people say the perfect means the completion of the New Testament. Again, when that was done, there was no more need for sign gifts to verify the message. You can read about it. You don't need the miracle again. The problem is, if we look at this, um, specifically verse 12, Paul's description of the perfect doesn't really fit the completion of the New Testament. Uh, Well, let's go back to... um, Verse 9, just for context there. 1 Corinthians 13. So 1 Corinthians 13, 9 is where it starts. He says, For we know, this is now, before the perfect has come, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Knowledge and Prophecy are two of the spiritual gifts. They're going to stop when the perfect comes. All right. By the way, do you notice the chiasm here? We may have mentioned this last week. (laughs) In verse 8, he mentions prophecy first and then knowledge. In verse 9, he mentions knowledge first and then prophecy. So we have another little chiasm there. So now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And he gives an analogy in verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Childhood is equivalent to the now. Okay, the current condition. Now we know in part and we prophesy in part. The perfect, when the perfect comes, is equivalent to adulthood. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Now notice verse 12. For now, that's current, in the context in which we use spiritual gifts for mutual edification. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. We talked about this before. The word dimly really means in a riddle. It's something that's not clear, something you have to think about and figure out. But since he's using the analogy of a mirror, they use it as a dim reflection, not clear. Uh, but then, when the perfect comes, we'll see face to face. Things are going to be clear. Okay? Now, current situation, I know in part, But then, when the perfect comes, I shall know fully just as I also have been fully known. Does that sound like, well, let me start that a different way. Did our knowledge, our spiritual sight and our spiritual knowledge become complete when the New Testament was finished? No. No. (laughs) So the perfect here can't be the New Testament because it relates to... Our maturity, not to a book. We are going to be completed. Our maturity is going to be finished. Okay. <clears throat> so the definition of the perfect goes way beyond the completion of the New Testament. Okay. So that is difficult, makes it difficult for that argument that the, that the gift of tongue stopped when the New Testament was finished. Because the perfect here is not the completion of the New Testament. We'll talk more of that, more about that, next time when we get into the structure. We're finally getting into the literary device here, (laughs) which is where we started. Chiasms are one literary device. We're now going to look at paragraph structure. We're going to go back and revisit verses 8 through 12 and look at the structure and how that helps us understand what he's saying. And then we're going to look at the list of things in verse 8 to see how he structured that list, another literary device, to help us understand what he's talking about. <coughs> Excuse me. Any uh, comments or observations about any of that? Karen, you said last time when you were talking, you said there were seven problems. hmm And gotten to Is that correct? Yes. Right. Okay. That's when we become mature. <laughs> That's Paul's description. That's our heavenly state. Yeah. That's when we get to heaven. That's why we need spiritual gifts. That's Paul's point in chapter 14, Ephesians chapter 4. We need to use the spiritual gifts to help each other grow spiritually. When we get to heaven, we're not going to need the gifts. We will be completed. We will be mature. <laughs> else because then you have the after yeah, right, right. Yeah, so. And our spiritual gifts going to be active in the millennium. Yeah. You know. the sacrifices will be returned. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's another issue. <laughs> All right. Well, let's close in prayer.